Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The folks that we elect, you know, Congress people, senators, they've got a two for one special for you, the American people. Well, well not exactly for you. Well, I guess you're just going to have to believe it when you see it. Yes, folks, there's a whole bunch of craziness going on. And yesterday was President's Day. I was traveling back from visiting some family up in Wisconsin and one interesting trend I saw was that uh, Abraham Lincoln is the worst president in American history. From people of the left, from people of the right, and from people, wait for this one, in libertarian circles. Is that right, though? And guess what? The Federalist Papers are back under the microscope with Federalist number 11 this time. I'm Andrew Coppins, and you are tuned in or watching Critical Thinking. Good Truth or Fiction Tuesday. If you didn't get the hint by the topics at the top of the show, that's what this is. It is a Truth or Fiction Tuesday right here on Critical Thinking. Before we get into all of that, though, do not forget you can follow me on social media. I am at The Coppins Show. Otherwise, you can follow on Instagram as well, at Critical Thinking Show. And with all of that having been said, thank you to each and every single one of you that watch us whether that's on X, whether that is on the Rumble channel, rumble.com backslash critical thinking, or for those of you who just simply make sure that you're following, that you're downloading, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on your favorite platform of choice. I greatly appreciate all of that. With that out of the way, though, we have a ton to get into, and I thought the first thing I wanted to touch on was... Um, there's been a lot of talk about America, the late Roman Empire, and comparisons, but um, I've got a question as to whether or not this is going to be the late Roman Empire we're talking about. Truth or fiction, the U.S. military attempting to recruit illegals for service is even more proof of late Roman Empire stuff. What are you talking about, Andy? Well, what if I told you this is the case? The new proposal in Washington that would help migrants get an expedited path to citizenship, it would require them to first serve in the U.S. military. All right, Fox Size Morgan McKay joins us with details of the bill which lawmakers say could help solve two problems at once. There is no higher honor than serving your country in uniform. And that honor could be extended to migrants under a new bill introduced by Hudson Valley Congressman Pat Ryan. Called the Courage to Serve Act, this bill would offer qualified and vetted migrants an expedited path to citizenship if they serve in the military. According to Ryan, last year the military services collectively missed recruiting goals by roughly 41,000 recruits, leaving some crucial positions unfilled. If there are folks with the courage to raise their right hand, take an oath to protect and defend our Constitution, and put their lives on the line for this country, 
then they sure as hell deserve the opportunity to be citizens in the United States of America. This bill comes days after a bipartisan border security package negotiated by the Senate fell apart amid Republican opposition. Staten Island Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis argued that the Senate bill did not go far enough when it comes to securing the border and said there is more President Joe Biden can do in the interim. He can uh, end catch and release, he can adjust the asylum, he can end the parole program that he started, and he can actually shut down the border. He can shut it down. Meanwhile, more than 173,000 migrants have entered New York City in the past two years, with the city still currently carrying... Now, we need to stop, because I told you up front we have a two-for-one special, and I think you saw what that two-for-one special was. The military gets to bring more people into its ranks because it missed its goals. And then, well, we can help eliminate the problem of these illegal asylum seekers because they're just going to get a pathway to citizenship by, um, I got to go with truth. Again, the question or the statement was the U S military attempting to recruit illegals for service is even more proof of late Roman empire stuff. I, I, Yes, this is truth. This is even more proof that we are in the late stages of the American empire. And I've long said that um, sometimes that's okay. The question is, are we okay being one of or the superpower? The superpower. One of a group of powers or the superpower? I don't know what the answer to that question is, but... The reality of this is we are literally watching ourselves rinse and repeat every ridiculous idea that the Romans did to themselves. Ever hear of the Visigoths? Ever hear of the Germanic people? And what was going on in the late Roman Empire? Like, we're not even talking about, like, the Holy Roman Empire. We're talking before the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire. See, what Rome did later on in its empire was that its core citizenry, the Roman citizenry, they had a very, very easy life, if you will. Even the plebes of the time. They got so enamored with conquest and being Roman and this, that, and everything in between that they couldn't be bothered to, ew, no, we're not going to those foreign lands and fighting, ew. Largely because many of them didn't see the point other than conquest for conquest's sake. Instead, what they would do is they would turn around, whether that be the Visigoths, whether that be what was going on in Spain, whether that was what was going on in France, the Germanic people, right? What did they do late in the Roman Empire? Well, if you know anything, by the way, I would check out the History of Rome podcast if you really want a really good idea of what Roman history looks like. It's absolutely a fantastic podcast. But all of that notwithstanding, what was going on? They would conquer people. They would then make them into their fighting force, the actual manpower. And then they would give them some sort of modest idea of citizenry. And sometimes not even full citizenry, but just pay and and we'll leave you alone for your service right well we'll not just we just won't pay attention to you for your service and then what took place when those individuals said hold up wait a minute um we're doing the fighting here and you're doing nothing and we're sacrificing while you're reaping what we sow Well, you see, the other piece of the puzzle is that the Romans were building walls so that these people, whether that was Hadrian's Wall in Scotland or elsewhere in Europe, so that those 
dastardly people, those, those barbarians, couldn't get through the gate. Well, after fighting on behalf of Rome and, and being promised all of these things, what did they just do? They turned around, scaled the walls, and then the people of the country of Rome, right, the, the Roman Empire, they turned around on the Romans. See, that's the actual history here. So why would we not learn a lesson from that? But, but Andrew, isn't it true that this would get rid of... No, no it would not. And, and what vetting process? We can't even vet the people that come here currently. They don't go through a vetting process, per se. How long is this going to take for them to be vetted? Because the vast majority of them don't come with proper documentation. They don't come with legal passports. They don't come with anything, really, other than money in their pocket. So what? So we're going to conscribe them, put them into military uniform, hand them weapons, hand them um, the keys to our drones, Remember, we're 41,000 short of the recruitment goal. So we're just going to, we solve that problem for ourselves, and then we, hmm, let's see who's coming over. The Chinese who hate us, the m radical Muslim population of sub-Saharan and northern Africa. Hmm, that's weird. Um, socialists and sympathizers and criminals from Venezuela and elsewhere in South and Central America. Hmm. How, you know, what planet does handing them the keys to the kingdom sound like a really good idea? In what world will we not see those individuals turn and use those weapons on us? What do you what do you mean? What I mean by that is that's exactly what has happened throughout all of human history when we, when when empires decided they were no longer we're above fighting, we're above sending our people over there. Now the other ac aspect of this is we also have to stop sending our people everywhere around the globe. We also have to stop being the world's only police. Because the harsh reality is that we have gotten it wrong more than we've gotten it right. We have sided with evil as many times as we've sided with morally good. In fact, we've propped up dictators who just turned their backs on us. We thought if we could nation build, they would be grateful to us. And that's not really the case. We haven't even learned our own lessons on this very idea and this very concept when we apply it to other nations, let alone putting them in our uniform to serve our country. How about this? We scale back. We don't have the military press. But Andrew, not every... Right. We cannot be the world's police. I've long said that. We cannot be that. If they don't want to fight for their own moral good, for their own for their own causes, for their own perceptions of what's going on, What are we doing? But Ukraine can't bring the, the uh, material and they're losing places that they've held for decades and decades and da-da-da-da-da. Okay. Um, we, what's happened to all of the money? We are piling up ammunition and all of the things that are going on in Ukraine while making sure that we don't have enough ammunition, that we don't have enough drones, that we don't have enough this. Our military brass is telling us that we don't have the ability to resupply ourselves. Except for they're enriching themselves because when they send them overseas, we've got to make more to come here. But they're making money off of the thing that we're sending overseas, so they're double-dipping. 
military-industrial complex. Now, there's a difference between saying that we are incapable of fighting the fights that we are in or defending our nation or fighting China or fighting Russia, if need be, or Iran, if need be. There's a difference between that, which I don't hear anybody saying. Now, fighting all three at the same time or two of those three at the same time might be a problem, right? But we're not incapable of fighting those fights singularly. But who's with us? Who's actually going to fight the fight with us? Where's most of our money gone in Ukraine, right? Let's think about those things. It's absolutely true. We are literally watching ourselves decide that we are not going to learn from any bit of our own history or others' history, which is going to be ironic when we come to Federalist number 11. But before we get there, now would be a great time for us to go to our second truth or fiction because yesterday was President's Day. Truth or fiction? Abraham Lincoln was America's worst president. And we see a lot of these best and worst presidents lists, and we see a lot of academics come out, and da 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 and, and somehow FDR is up there. And we could talk ad nauseum about this, but one of the trends that I've seen the most here is the uh, Abraham Lincoln. And that's coming from the left, that's coming from the right, that's also coming from libertarians. Somehow Abraham Lincoln makes the list of worst presidents ever. Is that truth or fiction? It is fiction. And if you follow me on X again at the Coppin Show, you would know that because my answer is very, very simple. Woodrow Wilson. Now, was Lincoln a perfect, great, grand, wonderful president? No, but I would put him somewhere in the top 10, I think of presidents because you also have to take into consideration um, suspending writs of habeas corpus and martial law and some of those things that I don't necessarily believe would have been necessary in the moment. But all of that notwithstanding, Lincoln is not a perfect man. He was not a perfect politician. He was a mild abolitionist at best. He did hold some, even for the time, radical views on race, by the way, including advocating for an island to send the slaves to and and some other things either earlier on or closer to running for the president of the United States. But what I find most who want to judge President Abraham Lincoln, judging him on, is today's morality. They're using today's morality as the guide, and this is the crux of the growing trend. And let me prove it to you. Because there's an article about why, and it was it's like five reasons or whatever, of why Abraham Lincoln was a really bad president. And it's like this. Number one, the Civil War was not inevitable. Lincoln caused it. That's right. Lincoln caused the Civil War by his own election. See, if they just elected the Democrat instead of the Republican in his choices, it goes on to say that war happens because politics fails. No, actually, no. That, that's not how this ever happens. War doesn't happen because politics fails. War happens because famine. War happens because religion. War happens because of a number of issues, mainly mainly none of which have anything to do with politics being a win or a fail, mind you. But let's continue on. By the way, this comes from Three Quarks Daily. But let's continue. War happens because politics fails. Lincoln's Republican Party was perceived as anti-Southern, as evidenced by its immediate promise to impose import tariffs that would hurt the South's economy to the benefit of the industrial North, and long-term commitment to the abolition of slavery. Although not the most radical candidate the Republicans could have nominated, more on which below, 
Lincoln was thus an extraordinarily divisive presidential candidate who was elected entirely by northern voters. The southern states launched their succession as soon as they heard Lincoln had won because they believed he and his Republican Party intended to pursue an anti-South agenda that would further cement their political marginalization within the USA. Perhaps reflecting his party's political ignorance of the South and his administration's inexperience, Lincoln seems not to have understood this. He therefore dramatically underestimated popular support for succession in the South and assumed a show of force would quickly crush it. Now, I will say this, that very last part about uh, assuming that a show of force would quickly crush this idea of succession or secession, that was a miscalculation. So there's a bit of truth in this, but what kind of revisionist history BS is that? Lincoln caused it by being the having the audacity to run for president and win. The reality of this is that no Democratic candidate was going to win because the Democratic Party supported slavery as a just lock, stock, and smoking barrel, end-all, be-all, line in the sand. This is anti-history at its finest, folks. See, he was a bad president because he made a miscalculation here. Right? He's a bad president because he was anti-South. That's to ignore the Missouri Compromise. That's to ignore the, from the time of the Constitution to 1860s America, the fact that uh, we've tried to deal with this idea of slavery and how to get rid of it, or what do we do with the Southern slave states versus the northern non-slave states, right? The slave trade being abolished in America very early on. I just this idea that Lincoln caused the secession of the South is one of the most anti-history takes I have ever seen. But this guy continues on as he says that Lincoln's war point number 2 cost too much and achieved too little. The cost of the Civil War were 620,000 soldiers killed, 475,000 wounded, and some $20 billion in 1860 dollars in direct and indirect economic costs, about twice annual GDP. Now, I want to stop right there because there's a lot of dispute over that number, that, that uh, $60 billion number, a lot of dispute over that. But let's continue, um, and it has to do with how you're calculating um, the, I believe it was the indirect economic costs. But anyway, he continues saying that the benefits were that approximately 4 million slaves were freed by the North's victory in 1865. And breaking that down, for every seven slaves freed, one soldier died and $35,000 in economic value was lost as a share of GDP equivalent to $155 million today. Moreover, freedom did not mean equality due to the federal government's abject failure to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments because retaining the southern states meant installing a large block of white supremacists in the national legislature. African Americans continued to be deprived of basic political, civil, and social rights for another 100 years. In 1900, for example, life expectancy for African Americans was a mere 33, about the same as it as in 1860, and 15 years less than for whites. Now, of course, that is true that freedom did not always mean equality. That is very true. And by the way, that's true in the North and the South. There were still racists in the North. There were still racist policies in the South. Ask about the history of Jack Trice at Iowa State. I, I just, he's the first black player at Iowa State and was murdered couldn't go on the same train, couldn't go to the same hotel as his white teammates in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's about as north as north is going to get. And then was killed on the field for being black and playing football with a bunch of white people. And there are stories of all stripes and all varieties when it comes to, to this mistreatment. But in the South, they were electing people to positions. 
in the Congress, African-Americans, former slaves, to Congress. Now, did they always live up to the tenets of, of what, they, what they wanted to? No. I mean, a great example of this is what took place with Frederick, Frederick Douglass and his relationship with Abraham Lincoln. That turned sour. And it turned sour because, well, $7 a day versus $13 a day for black soldiers to white soldiers. That's not equality either. And that is very much true. But at the same point in time, this is still full of absolute revisionist history BS. Absolute revisionist history. And then we get this point, because there I could go on through all of these things, but point number three was this. War was not necessary. Slavery would have ended anyway. I, no. No, 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 no. And, and here's here's why. Without even dealing with the, the entirety of this article or this paragraph, if you will, this section, is this reality. Yes, it's true that the South's economy was being hurt by the more industrialized, the more textile-based northern economy the more capitalistic-based northern economy in the South's more agrarian, cotton- and textile-based economy. It wasn't really textile-based. It was more cotton and some of those goods and services, if you will. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. They were much more agrarian than industrial in the South. That's a reality. It is also true that the policies of this country were more tended to expansion to the West and expansion of industrialized capitalistic economies. The South refused to get on board with this because it couldn't. Why? Because it was slave-owning. Period, point blank. But let's, let's see what he has to say here. So he says that the Civil War definitely ended slavery in America in 1865, but that doesn't mean that slavery would have gone on forever without it. The economic inefficiency of slavery is fairly clear, at least to economists. Some non-economist historians seem to have trouble understanding that point. It is certainly true that cotton plantation owners could make more using slave labor, and that once they had built an economy around slaves as assets, they were financially dependent on the perpetuation of the system, like oil companies whose balance sheets assume continued high demand for their products. This political economy of slavery explains why the South's slave-owning oligarchs were so vehemently opposed to, the, to abolition in 1860, just as it explains why oil, oil companies lobbied so hard against climate science and carbon taxes. However, looking at the economy as a whole, slave labor has an opportunity cost relative to free labor since it deliberately underutilizes the economically valuable set of potential skills, motivation, creativity, and so on of a large percentage of the population. Hence, slavery is a less efficient economic institution. It misallocates resources and so leaves a society poorer than it would have been. 
Now, this guy goes and continues to talk about um, how the further capitalization of Western society led to slavery being taken away in, in the South or in, in uh, England and then the last state, the last Western state to do it in 1888. Except for we still have slavery in today's world. Slavery is not a gone thing. It still happens all over this world, folks. It happens in Africa. It happens in the Middle East. It happens in Asia. It just looks a little bit different, but it happens. There's literal slavery all over the globe still today. That's a scourge that humankind still deals with. There was no guarantee that slavery would have ended. If that were the case, if this were about economics, right? If this were about making sure that both sides had some compensation or both sides of this idea had a way forward or that we could help to busy up or, or build up the industrialization of the South, thus allowing it these plantation-owning oligarchs, as he puts it, to benefit from maybe ownership of a company instead of ownership of people, right? You think that would have happened? This was much more than just economics. It's much more than just slavery versus anti-slavery. The reality of this is if this idea and concept was that, well, war was not inevitable, slavery would have eventually gone away. When? Because America, the founding fathers in 1775, as they started to debate what was going on with the Declaration of Independence coming in 1776, right? They were already debating the concept of getting rid of slavery and how to do it. Turns out unification of the country still was a very big problem. And by the way, we're still dealing with the concept and the idea of a unified America. It's true that we have a country, but are we really a unified people? Not just that we believe different ideas and concepts of the power or less power of the federal government versus the lower government. No, it's do we even believe in the Constitution versus leftism, versus actual socialism? Do we even believe the words that are coming out of our Constitution's mouth? Right? We're still dealing with that. In fact, we're going to be talking about it in the Federalist Papers because it's still important today. Nearly 250 freaking years later. What are we talking about? That this was an, that slavery would have inevitably washed its hands because of economics. You see, because he goes on to say that, well, the moral case wasn't working. It's the economic case. The point of where, where the South got to when it came to secession was economic and slave-based. It got there because they were unwilling to modernize their economy because of slavery. What would have changed? How would that have changed in any way, shape, or form? Dying off of plantation owners and then confiscating their familial wealth? The slave trade had been abolished for a long-ass time by then. Do you see the problem with all of these arguments? This is, this is part and parcel of the argument of, oh, look at that, that Lincoln. He was so terrible as a president. Did he make all the right choices? No. Was the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865 kind of foisted upon him, absolutely, when you read real history of that time. He didn't do it because he wanted to. He did it because this backed him into a corner. 
it was a two for one special to use a term from our last discussion. But to believe all of this is to believe in absolute leftist revision of history in America, period, point blank. This is some of the most BS gobbledygook from leftist British, as you can tell with labor academics I have ever seen. Now, yes, we were a fractious right? A big time powder keg waiting to happen because we refused to deal with the moral issue. The economics part of this was part of the issue, but I lean way more into, we were wrestling with kind of a third, well, actually a second great awakening in America, right? That's where this abolitionist movement kind of projected itself upwards, is this new great awakening in America. And it put pressure on our politics because of morality. And then they attempted to use economics as the push point for that moral stance, by the way. See, these things are usually tied together. Yeah, and then the powder keg did explode. And it's because of our politicians' inability to just stand up for the moral good, come what may. That's the reality of this situation. Now, as for the right and proper answer to who the hell is the worst president in American history, that is definitely Woodrow Wilson. And let me count the ways here. How about um, the Federal Reserve? Uh, April 15th, does that ring a bell to you? Well, it's thanks to Woodrow Wilson and the federal income tax. And that's right, until the 1910s, we had no federal income tax. Yet we, we managed to figure things out. He's responsible for the brand new or the newer political formula that exists in America, the one that, you know, we have a expert or managerial class that needs to handle everything with the government you know, experts everywhere, and he was one of those experts. They believed themselves to be so smart that they wanted U.S. policy to be something akin to eugenics. See, we can perfect humanity here in America, and we'd be better off for it. You know, otherwise known as killing all the blacks, the cripples, the left-handed people, um, all of those who didn't fit some socialist model of perfection of humanity, kill them. Kill them all. Oh, and don't forget about the immigrants that you had to kill too because they were less than the Protestant human being here in America. And how about what he did to political dissidents of all stripes, by the way? Mainly anybody who opposed the idea of socialism, which is little known, part of Woodrow Wilson's history, just Take a look at what he did to communists. Take a look at the Red Scare. Take a look at all of the things that were going on under his watch when it came to immigrants. Oh, sure. There was a total rising tide of immigrants. Oh, not really, because there was a rising tide of anti-immigrant sentiment, kind of akin to today's anti-immigrant sentiment. Take a look at the language back then and the language today. Take a look at the 19-teens language on immigration and the bills and the things that were going on and look at today and tell me there's almost any difference. But, you know, Wilson elected office in 1912, so he did nothing to stop said anti-immigrant sentiment. In fact, it was a big part of his win. And then I did a... Did I fail to mention this, that he was an absolute racist and not just by today's woke standards, but by every standard in human history, like a straight up KKK racist. Did I, did I fail to mention that? And then did I fail to mention the, the treaty of Versailles world war one? And then it, did I also fail to mention the league of nations, his thought that he had this ability to perfect humanity he basically could Davos. He could World Economic Forum. He's the smartest man in the world in the room. He's 
always got the answer. Folks, if you think that anybody tells you that they've got the answer and it's always to every single topic on the planet, don't ever listen to them on anything because they don't know anything about anything in reality. Look, I I can be well-versed. I can look things up. I can do things, but it doesn't mean I have all of the answers. And I will readily tell you that. But what I do know the answer to is the question of who's the worst president of all time. And that, my friends, is Woodrow Wilson, period, point, freaking blank. All right, but all of that having been said, um, folks, you have got to see this because there's an amazing opportunity. That's right, an amazing opportunity from our friends over at coffeebrandcoffee.com right now. You can get 50% off, a 50% discount on your first month for Jeremy's Coffee Club subscription. That's right, over at coffeebrandcoffee.com. It is an absolutely fantastic opportunity for you, 50% off of your first month. Apply that checkout, and you might say, well, what is it? Well, it is delivery once a month. You get different blends every single month. It'll feature an exclusive coffee from around the globe. They're not going to tell you exactly what it is, but you'll get unique flavors. You'll get roasted flavors by masters, no strings attached. You can cancel your subscription at any point in time, but for $25 a month, and you get it for 50% off. That's right, 50% off of that for your first month. You can go to coffeebrandcoffee.com, enter the promo code CRITICALTHINKER at checkout. You will get that 25% off you can't or 50% off excuse me $25 so 50% off that's $12.50 if you're doing the math at home $12.50 for fresh roasted fresh coffee you can't really beat that so go to coffeebrandcoffee.com check out Jeremy's uh, club the roaster's choice club it would be fantastic for you. I will send the link out. It'll be in our on my X uh, profile and elsewhere. But again, all you have to do is enter the promo code Critical Thinker at checkout. You also get ten percent off of anything else that you purchase. Fifty percent off. Apply to checkout of your first month if you join the Roasters Choice Club. All right. All of that being said, now's a great time for us to take a look at the Federalist Papers. And today, we are dealing with Federalist number 11, and it's titled The Utility of the Union in Respect to Commercial Relations and a Navy. So we're back to Alexander Hamilton being the author here. And what's this one all about? Well, it's about a stronger union, makes the United States a bigger power to deal with when it comes to both commerce and naval powers and naval issues in general. I know that would be a shocking concept. And then we continue what has been the theme, right, since Federalist number two, and it's going to continue to be the theme all the way through Federalist number 14, all of the reasons to preserve this union. Not even talk about the Constitution, but the preservation of the union. So, in this, in the intro, he states the following. Again, we're talking about Hamilton. The importance of the union in a commercial light is one of those points about which there is least room to entertain a difference of opinion and which has, in fact, commanded the most general assent of men who have any acquaintance with the subject. This applies as well to our intercourse with foreign countries as with each other. That's to say what? You really can't be serious if you believe that we're going to be better off as 13 states or three or four confederacies when it comes to our trade and protection because we're, you know, on a coast of an ocean. We need a Navy. Now, in the first three paragraphs of this essay, Hamilton lays out the case as to why trade considerations as a unified nation are super important, and they are. I think we can all recognize that. Things like treaties, being involved instead of excluded from the already global trade market of that day, 
you know, all that sort of trade rigmarole. But then Hamilton addresses the need for a Navy. And he does it by the following. A further resource for influencing the conduct of European nations towards us in this respect would arise from the establishment of a federal Navy. There could be no doubt that the countenance of the Union under an efficient government would put in our power at a period not very distant to create a Navy which, if it could not vie with those of the great maritime powers, would at least be a respectable weight if thrown into the scale of either of two contending parties. This would be more peculiarly the case in relation to operations in the West Indies. A few ships of the line sent opportunely to the reinforcement of either side would often be sufficient to decide the fate of a campaign, on the event of which interests of the greatest magnitude were suspended. Our position is, in this respect, a most commanding one. And if, and if to this consideration we add that of the usefulness of supplies from this country in the prosecution of military operations in the West Indies, it will readily be perceived that a situation so favorable would enable us to bargain with great advantage for commercial privileges. A price would be set not only upon our friendship, but upon our neutrality. By a steady adherence to the Union, we may hope, ere long, to become the arbiter of Europe in America, and to be able to incline the balance of European competitions in this part of the world as our interest may dictate. So in other words, right, we want to be able to dictate to Europe its terms here instead of vice versa, which has been the case since the beginning of the American colonies, right, and the colonization of the West Indies and so forth and so on. But the reality of the situation is that if you don't have a unified country and you've got Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, everybody having, you know, their own ship or two or five or 10 or 20 or a thousand, right? And they're going to be friends with this place, but not this one. And, and then, but North Carolina is, you get an absolute mess and then you get war here. Now, Hamilton continues to point out the need for unity on both fronts, by the way, appealing to the varying nature of the natural surroundings of this country. Don't you forget that this country is very varied in its natural resources. If we share a unified ability to trade and protect that trade, it would be to the vital success of the individual states that have maybe one or two of those vital tradable assets that can benefit the rest that don't have them, but may have other tradable assets. So everybody can benefit, right? That's exactly what he says here. Under a vigorous national government, the natural strength and resources of the country directed to a common interest would baffle all the combinations of European jealousy, jealousy to restrain our growth. This situation would even take away the motive to such combinations by inducing an impracticability of success. An active commerce, an extensive navigation, and a flourishing marine would be the offspring of a moral and physical necessity. We might defy the little arts of the little politicians to control or vary the irresistible and unchangeable course of nature. That is, the unchangeable course of nature is Humans always want power. Power begets power, blah, 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 blah. Now, Hamilton then addresses the idea and the concept as they have been doing about disunion. What is disunity? What is a, you know, scrambled up 13 or four confederacies, whatever it is. What should happen if disunion happens? He says the following. But in a state of disunion, these combinations might exist and might operate with success. It would be in the power of the maritime nations availing themselves of our universal impotence to prescribe the conditions of our political existence. And as they have a common interest in being our carriers and still more in preventing our becoming theirs, they would in all probability combine to embarrass our navigation in such a manner as would in effect destroy it and confine us to a passive commerce. We should then be compelled to content ourselves with the first price of our commodities and to see the profits of our trade snatched from us to enrich our enemies and persecutors. 
that unequaled spirit of enterprise, which signalizes the genius of the American merchants and navigators, and which is in itself an inexhaustible mine of national wealth, would be stifled and lost. And poverty and disgrace would overspread a country which, with wisdom, might make herself the admiration and envy of the world. In other words, if you guys want to go your own way, uh, you're going to starve to death, you're going to starve to death, and you're going to become the poorest of the poor nations. Does anybody want that? I don't think so. And finally, Hamilton ends like this. It may be perhaps, it, excuse me, it may perhaps be replied to this, that whether the states are united or are united or disunited, there would still be an intimate intercourse between them which would answer to the same ends. This intercourse would be fettered, interrupted, and narrowed by a multiplicity of causes, which in the course of these papers have been amply, amply detailed. A unity of commercial as well as political interest can only result from a unity of government. And thus is the case about what about our maritime power? What about our naval power? What about our ability to trade and conduct commerce on an international scale? What about our ability to, to get the best deal possible for goods that we need and things that we want to trade? It only comes from our government being unified. I think it's a fascinating argument that Hamilton makes here. And I think it's probably one of the stronger ones, right? I think if you were to ask Wisconsin, if it would be uh, in a better position than Illinois, when it comes to natural resources, you would say, uh, hell yeah. Uh, and it's ability to take a look at the varied agricultural resources, the natural resources, all of those sorts of things. I think you would say yes, but is it better off than Minnesota? Is it better off than Iowa? Is it better off than, California, in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. In fact, California is a very resource-rich part of the country for certain things, for a lot of other things like natural water, for running water, for drinkable water. Not so much. All right, all of that to say this. I think that uh, as we continue to hear all of the arguments for the concept of unity— and we see all of these arguments uh, coming together for, you know, preservation of the union. It's becoming abundantly clear that the key issue is human nature. And they don't trust human nature to be good, to be kind. Why? It's because they know the Bible. They know the history and what it tells us about ourselves then, in 1789, and today, in 2024. I'm going to leave you with that idea and that thought in your head. With that being said, please be smart, be safe, be kind, make sure you eat all of your meals today, and as always, Matthew 547.